This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some free ebooks and drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you wanna know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, including some episodes on breakups and relationship management. That's where all the basics are, so get a handle on that first. We've got boot camps running every single month here in Hollywood, California. Details on those at theartofcharm.com. Looking forward to meeting all you guys here at AOC. Today we're talking with Michael Port. He's been called an uncommonly honest author by the Boston Globe, and actually he was in Sex in the City, Third Watch, Law and Order, among a lot of other acting positions, as well as being that New York Times bestselling author. He's written five books, including Book Yourself Salad, which he's most known for, Book Yourself Salad Illustrated, in case I guess you're too booked to actually read it. And then, of course, the follow-ups to that as well. It's funny because Book Yourself Salad was originally about dating, which I found fascinating. And he also talks about his battle with an eating disorder and food addiction, how we can turn that knowledge into staying honest with ourselves and how that can be a key to our own success, keeping us on track. We're also going to talk about how to use theatrical performance to steal the show from landing deals to making speeches and using this in our relationships as well how to stop hiding and get on stage, metaphorically speaking, of course, what to do when the spotlight is on you and how to be flexible and adapt like the best improv actors. And we're not talking about acting here. We're talking about business, relationships, dating, attraction, the usual art of charm fair. We're also going to talk, last but not least, about how to scrub away your quote-unquote fat layers and BS persona and see yourself as you actually are. And then, of course, leverage that for self-expression, popularity, and meaning. Enjoy this one with Michael Port. Right. So I appreciate you taking the time, first of all. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I have a really good angle that I don't speak about. Okay. And it relates to the book. I really wrote Book Yourself Solid based on what I knew about dating. Oh, really? Yeah. And eventually, I may turn Book Yourself Solid into a Book Yourself Solid for dating. Oh, wow. Okay. So it wasn't a productivity book. How did it go from hey, this is about dating to, you know what, let's turn this into business. Was that like an editorial choice at some point? Well, no, no. I knew I was going to write it about business, but my perspective on marketing, what I knew about creating awareness was from my understanding of how to meet women. That's interesting because that's exactly what our business is as well. The Art of Charm started off with hey, let's you know meet a bunch of girls and it'll be really fun. And then it was like, hey, that's a great side effect of this really awesome skill set that makes you really yeah. good with people and makes yeah. you well off. Yeah. First of all, I'm glad that you're here and you've been called the uncommonly honest author by the Boston Globe. Do we want to know why that is? I mean, what's up with that? First of all, I'm a big fan of vulnerability because I think it makes people relatable. Was that where they were going with that or did you slip up and tell them something you didn't want the world to know? <laughs> no, I think it's two things. I think number one, I am very open and honest, and I think that's appreciated in my work. But number two, I'm writing in a market that's not always very open and honest. So I don't think the bar is actually that high, unfortunately. Right. You're uncommonly honest because you don't lie through your teeth every single chapter. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. Okay, the bar might be low. And it's true, though, unfortunately, that marketing is full of sort of weird white lies and spin in a lot of ways, I was talking to somebody here in San Francisco that was from out of town, because this actually can be a pretty modest town, depending on the startup culture that you're in. It's also pretty pretentious when it comes to food and things. But other than that, for business, it's pretty modest. And this guy said, yeah, I've got a run rate right now of a few million dollars. And, and I went, wait a minute, who says run rate of a few million dollars? 
I was like, wait a minute, I don't want to embarrass this guy, but I asked him, what do you mean run rate? And he said, yeah, my run rate's two million bucks. And I said, well, did you just do a launch? And he goes, yeah, why? And I said, well, if you just launched something and you sold $800,000 worth, then yeah, your run rate's millions of dollars because you're basically assuming that you're going to have the same revenue as you did on launch throughout the rest of the year. That's ridiculous. And he goes, well, I know, but it just, it sounds more impressive. And at the end of the day, this guy was selling products on how to make money. And I thought, that's kind of a crappy thing to do because most people don't know what run rate is and they just go, he's making millions of dollars when you're not. exactly right. Yeah, and you know, you can make uh, $10 million, but if it costs you $9,999,000 to make $10 million, you know, that's not much to speak of. Yeah, that's true. There are guys who are like, no, look, here's my merchant account or my PayPal account statement. And it's like $87,000, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I sure do remember those days. And you go, oh, wow, he made $87,000. And then, of course, what your friends will tell you if they're marketers, they'll go, yeah, well, my outlay for this was $85,000 in ads and traffic. Yep. And I think in general, I think it's nice to have a healthy dose of skepticism about yourself. I think that's wise. Explain that a little, though. You know, especially when you have big dreams and big goals and you're achieving many of them and on the way to achieving others, you can start to get a little full of yourself. You can start to get the sense that you're somehow special or entitled. And I think that, you know, that's a dangerous place to be uh, for a lot of reasons, but especially when you're in a business, you know, as we've been discussing that you know, tends to embellish and, you know, there's a network marketing like feel to it, even though, you know, I'm not in the network marketing business. That's if you were, you would never say that. That's how we know that because those people are there. That's all self-improvement and motivated and go get them. It's never, Hey, this is network marketing. Exactly. And so I think that when you're skeptical of yourself, it helps keep you honest. So I often think when I'm writing Uh, any marketing copy or I'm in any kind of sales conversation, I often think, how would my mother feel about the way that I'm presenting myself and my work? And if I think my mother would feel really good about it, then I know that I'm doing a good job because my mother has a very high level of integrity. Mm -hmm. And that's always helped me, you know, staying slightly skeptical and it allows me to to stay honest and not worry about what other people are doing. I, I don't lead as a skeptic when I'm looking at what other people are doing. I just look at it for myself and make sure that, you know, what I'm doing is honest. And ultimately, at the end of the day, then I think that you attract the people that you're meant to serve that way. You push away people that, you know, don't connect with you and you hopefully attract the people that you're meant to serve. Yeah. Well, what if the cold hard truth is that I really am this awesome? Then what do I do? Well, then you're good. You've got <laughs> yeah. no problem. All right, good. Yeah. All right, you, just you know, that's the whole point is that maybe you are really awesome because you're skeptical of yourself and that allows you to, you know, really do the work that's required and really deliver what you promise you're going to deliver. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm I obviously if I'm kidding on that one, but I think it is healthy to be skeptical of yourself. And I think you're right. I think, it, you know, it's great to have high self-esteem. No one's going to argue that. But how do we toe that line between being skeptical of yourself and actually dismissing your own successes, and which might lead to self-sabotage for a lot of people. I think there's a lot of people that do really well and could do a lot better if they would stop talking themselves out of their own success. Maybe the voice of their mother in their head isn't as nice as yours or mine. (laughs) Sure. Many of us have lots of voices of judgment running around in our head. And that's not unusual. I've got them too. Every once in a while, you know, those will pop up. But I often ask, you know, whose life are we living? Are we living our life? Or are we living the voices uh, that we hear? Hopefully, we're living our life. If we're really clear about why we're trying to achieve the things that we want to achieve, then maybe some of those voices, maybe they don't disappear, but maybe they quiet down a little bit. So what is the point of all of this? Is it to produce a particular lifestyle that is meaningful for you and you enjoy living? Or is it about approval? I'll often ask, you know, am I looking for results here or am I looking for approval here? And what's the point of the results? Are the results just so that I can have more of something, like more money? Or is there something worthwhile behind uh, these results for me and for the people that I'm serving? Excellent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you can ask yourself that and get the answer 
to that question, I guess you'll find out. In fact, for me, it's been a great time saver because I've been able to go, how much of this am I doing for ego and how much of this is going to actually help my clients slash business? And there's a lot of stuff that I was able to trim out. I'll tell you that. That's something that I ask myself on a regular basis. Because I'll ask myself the question and I'll go, "Mm, I think I'm trying to get approval here. Let me back up a little bit and let me focus on really what's important here. I think, think when you want to get approval, then you're often very nervous. And what happens is this. If you really want something, if you have a really, really, really deep love for something, sometimes it's easier not to go after it than to go after it. Because if you go after it and you don't get it, it hurts too much. Sure. And hence the whole concept of fear of rejection, right? If if you don't really want something and you try to get it and you don't get it, you go, eh, oh well. So I started my career as an actor. Yeah, you were you were in Sex in the City, Third Watch, yep. Law and Order. Yep. Uh, and a whole bunch of others. And I was less mature then because I was younger. And when I look back at what I was doing, I didn't do the work that I needed to do to get the roles that I wanted to get. And I only realize this now. I didn't realize this at the time. But what I know now is that if I did everything in my power, if I admitted how much I wanted it, if I admitted how much I cared, and I didn't get it, what would that mean? Would that mean that I didn't have what it takes? Would that mean that I was a failure? Through my attitude, I said no before they could say no. Right. You sort of reject the potential rejection or you basically avoid it slash self-sabotage is what we call that. But yeah. By coming up with all these reasons why I didn't really want it. You know, so what? I'd be starring opposite Tom Hanks. And so what Spielberg is directing? You know, I read the script and it's not really that good. So I don't think it's going to go anywhere anyway. I mean, what a load of crap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Sure. So we, sometimes we make up reasons. We make up excuses for why we don't really want to do something. But Deep down inside, it's because we really want it. And if we admit how much we want it and we go after it and we don't, well, what does that mean? And it's easy to take that to heart and let it drive you or not drive you. Control you may be a better word for that. But, but I, don't, I won't do that anymore. It, that doesn't mean that, you know, I, I don't get hurt if I don't get something that I want. You know, I feel like, ah, oh, geez, you know, why, why didn't they pick me? Why did they pick the other person? You know, why didn't I win? You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, that still comes up. But... I don't do that anymore. There's just no way. I leave everything I have in the room or everything I have on the stage. So tomorrow and the next day, I've got meetings with publishers all day long about a new book that I'm bringing to market. And I'm not going to go in there and pretend that I don't care. Right. I'm going to go in there and leave everything I have in the room so that they know how much I'm going to give to this. They know how much I care about it because... I'm not going to do it if I don't care about it. That's a good point. And and how much does the acting background help you leave everything in the room? Because I think a lot of people go, I left everything I had in there, but really all the action was going on kind of in their own head and them them worrying and freaking out about it was going on and they felt exhausted afterwards, but nobody else saw anything. (laughs) Exactly right. I was actually playing dominoes uh, on the boat the other night with two friends of mine and they're in their 50s. And uh, Donna sneezed. So I said, bless you. Harry, her husband, didn't say anything. And she goes, see, look, Michael said, bless you. Why can't you say bless you? And he said, I said, bless you. She said, no, you didn't. And he said, Michael, I said, bless you, right? I said, Harry, you did not say bless you. Really? He said, well, I thought it. And she's like, see, I've been telling you for 50 years, that's what you've been doing. You think you said it, but you didn't say it. So a lot of times we think that we have left everything on the table. We think we've said something that we should have said, but we didn't. We thought it. Absolutely. There is no doubt in my mind that my training and my experience as an actor has influenced my work in business. And that, in fact, is what my next book is going to be on because we are always playing a role. We are always playing a role. Now, hopefully, the role that we're playing is an authentic role. Because if it's an inauthentic role, then, of course, we're not compelling. And we turn people off. But if we play authentic roles in all different aspects of our life, then maybe we can be very compelling. So we play one role 
when we're home with our family. We play another role when we are with our friends on a guy's vacation fishing off the coast of Mexico. We play another role when we are pitching a, a new idea, new business to a venture capital firm. So we're playing different roles. And if we can understand what we should bring to that role, what kind of character to develop for that role based on different parts of our natural personality so that we amplify different parts of our personality to develop characters that are right for those scenarios, for those scenes, then we can generally perform well in those scenes. And so understanding the backstory, understanding the the situation, understanding the conflict, understanding the resolution, and so that you can increase the conflict in a positive way because what performers know is that the more risk they take, the more compelling it is to watch. And then, of course, the more compelling that resolution is because take, for example, The Born Identity. Mm -hmm. Sure. Great movie. So it opens with Matt Damon passed out, unconscious, in the water with a bullet in his back. He gets picked up by fishermen from some other country. They take the bullet out of him, but they also find that there's a little capsule with some code in it uh, in his body, in his arm or wherever they found it in his back. It's a little unusual. Mm -hmm. He wakes up. He speaks English, but he also understands what they're saying, and he doesn't understand why. He doesn't remember anything about himself. So they drop him off with a couple bucks in his pocket, and they give him a coat. He goes to a bank where he uses this code to get to his safety deposit box, a Swiss safety deposit box. Inside, he finds all these passports, a gun, and $10,000. He goes to the embassy because he thinks, I'm American. I should go to the embassy. Well, guess what? He's jumped at the embassy, but he takes out all these guys within a matter of seconds, but he has no idea how he knows how to do it, and on and on and on. Now, that's compelling. The stakes are really high. Now, then what if there's a film where it opens up with a guy who's sitting at a desk and he looks up and goes, huh, I think I forgot who I was for like three minutes. Oh, well. And then he goes back to working <laughs> on his spreadsheet at the desk, and that's the rest of the film. Right. It's not very compelling. So the question is, how can we keep raising the stakes in our own life? How can we make it more compelling by taking more risk? That's what the performer knows. All right, back to the show. How do we sort of assimilate that into our own lives if we're running a business or if we're working on this in our relationships or even if we're just employees of a corporation and we want to impress our higher-ups? How do we sort of assimilate this stuff? I mean, taking risk, it sounds cool, sounds sexy. What does that really mean for us on a practical level? Well, let's take some examples. Let's say you want to start your own business. Well, taking risks means making really big promises, really, really big public promises. If you don't make promises and fulfill them, then nothing happens. Right. Of course, if you make big promises and don't fulfill them, nobody wants to play with you again. Right, right. So that's where the risk is. The risk is all in that promise. So no matter what you do for a living, the risk is always in the size of the promises that you make or are willing to make. It's always where the risk is. And then, of course, can you deliver on it? And if you make a promise that is just bigger than you think you can deliver on, well, then that's an exciting, compelling place to be because you'll reach up to deliver to the promise that you made. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Sure, yeah. but that's what makes it interesting. Yeah, excellent. Is that how we sort of step out of the wings and really get into the zone or step onto the stage to extend the metaphor? Absolutely. So, you know, sometimes we're put in the spotlight and we didn't want to be there, but we've got to shine when we're there. Sometimes we want the spotlight. We didn't know how to get it. And this is what will get us into that spotlight. It'll put all the pressure on us. The lights will be shining on us. All the eyeballs will be on us. And then we've got to be able to perform when called upon. And what do we do when the spotlight is on us? I mean, it seems like as a CEO of a company or somebody leading a project at work, or maybe you're just the head of a household, or, or even, even that aside, just a mentor to somebody else, a child or anybody else, what do we do when the spotlight is on us? I mean, obviously, this is where we got to bring our A game. But again, easier said than done, right? Like, sure. All cliche. Sure. So 
the actor knows a lot about improv. And when the spotlight is on you, often improv is what's going to keep the spotlight on you. It's what's going to save you when you're in trouble. Amy Poehler gave a commencement address at Harvard University. And in it, she talked about what improv taught her about living life. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but she talked about improv teaching her to listen, to say yes, to live in the moment, to make sure that you play with people who have your back, that you make big choices, you make them often, you make them early. And then I remember her talking about, don't start a scene talking about jumping out of an airplane, already jump out of the airplane and then start the scene. And that's what she's talking about, the risks. And ultimately she said, look, if you're scared, you look in your partner's eyes because they're going to support you. So this idea of living in the moment, listening, making big choices, making them early, making them often, that's what you do in the spotlight. And when she's just looking at other people's eyes, I take it to mean work with others. You want to do big things in the world, work with others and allow them to be in that spotlight with you as well. Because there's nothing less attractive than a selfish actor. And when I say actor, I don't just mean a professional performer. When you are running a company, when you are working your way up in a company, when you're starting a business, you are an actor. Meaning you are somebody who is in action trying to make things happen. The compelling actor on the stage is somebody who is going after what they want. And when they're going after what they want, there are roadblocks in their way. There are other characters who don't want to give that character what they are going after. So if you and I are in a scene and, you know, we're brothers and you inherited all this money from our father and I want some of it because I don't think it's fair that he gave it all to you. I'm going to do everything in my power to get it from you. So I'm going to fight with you. I'm going to beg you. I'm going to tell you how awesome you are. I'm going to try every tactic I possibly can to get that from you. And that's compelling to watch. That's what an actor does. They act on what they want, their intentions, what they're trying to get, their goals. And that's why we can learn so much from the performer who says, yes, and I will do this. Yes, and I will do this. So how do we stay flexible like that? I mean, how do we bring those skills to the workplace, to the family, to our own business? Sure. So one of the first rules of improv is the concept of yes and. So if you and I are doing improv and there's an audience watching and the scene opens with you running in the room saying, oh my God, I broke my leg. And I say, no, you didn't. It's over. It's done. I've just crushed the beginning of terrible. But if you walked in and said, oh my God, I broke my leg. I'd be like, I know, but your hair looks great. Okay. Well, now we can go somewhere else. So it's yes and, yes and, yes and. So when we are working with others and they give us some feedback, yes, and we could also try this. Yes, and we could also try this. You know the devil's advocate? You know that person? Of course, yeah. That's usually me. <laughs> I will never hire anyone that says, I like to play the devil's advocate. Right, just to play devil's advocate here. Yeah, I don't want the devil in my world. I want the person who says yes and. And that doesn't mean that they're yes men. Those are two entirely different things. The devil's advocate says, no, I don't think that's going to work. The person who says yes and says, Michael, yes, that's an interesting idea. And I have another one. I see. Because the devil's advocate type of character will shatter the energy that's moving you guys forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Crush it. It's like when you go home to your wife or your girlfriend, you say, hey, I got this really cool idea, and what if we do this, and, and then I can do that, and then this really cool thing will happen. It would really be annoying and probably a deal breaker for me relationship-wise if somebody went, yeah, but that might not work out like that. Uh huh. I would be like, well, I don't want to tell you about my hopes and dreams anymore because you kind of suck. <laughs> yeah. How do we remain critical thinkers, though, without becoming devil's advocate, you know, at the same time. Because the last thing, you know, and you sort of touched on this, it doesn't mean they're yes men. That's an important distinction because especially in startup-y type businesses or, you know, any sort of business situation, and I'm sure that we can extend this to personal relationships, although I don't see an obvious example right now, you definitely don't want a bunch of yes men 
or yes women around, just as you don't want devil's advocates, you don't want people who go, great idea, and then turn around and go, this is totally screwy. I'm going to monster.com and putting my resume up right now. Sure. Yes. So when you come to me with an idea and I think, I don't know, it seems a little half-baked. That's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's a little half-baked. I might say, yes, yes. Have you thought about this? You say, well, no, I hadn't thought about that. Well, let's think about it. A completely different conversation right. we're having. Then you think, Jordan, that sounds a little half-baked. Right. So rather than intercepting the conversation or slamming me or the idea into a brick wall, you kind of go down that path with me and allow me to see how I'm completely wrong. I'll give you an example. A wonderful woman came to one of my master classes on public speaking and she got up on stage and there are about 200 people in the audience and she gets on stage and then I coach her through her performance. And she did about 10 minutes of her performance and I stopped her and we started working on things. And at the beginning, she told a story about two men who wanted to go to California during the gold rush to make their fortune. And it was a very long story and it was convoluted and it really wasn't necessary at all. But of course, she was thinking, well, I'm a speaker. I'm supposed to start with a story. That's what everybody tells me. So she comes up with the story, but it wasn't really necessary. Now, I could have told her right off the bat, I could have said, stop, stop, stop. That story doesn't work. You don't need it. Cut it. And all of the hours of work that went into it all of the commitment and connection she has to that story, all of the, all the sweat and blood and tears could crush her, make her feel terrible. And, you know, to use that word energy, just suck the life right out of her. Or we could work together for a while until she figures out that the story isn't necessary, which is exactly what happened. And in fact, the whole audience saw it too. Ultimately, she said, you know, Michael, as I'm suggesting, well, maybe you try it this way, or you could think you thought about trying it this way, or how about trying it this way? She goes, you know, Michael, I don't think I need that story at all. And I'm thinking, yes, yes, she figured it out on her own. And that is the most empowering. That is very empowering. So if you've ever been in a situation where, say, with your girlfriend or with a friend or a business partner where... They say, you know, I'm working on this thing. I've got trouble here. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm not sure what to do. And you give them an idea. And you think the idea is great. And they go, nah, nah, nah I don't think that's it. Then they go away and come back a couple of days later and say, you know, remember, Jordan, I was working on that thing and ah, I wasn't sure what to do. I figured it out. I think I should do this. Right. And you say, but that's exactly what I said you should do three days ago. And they say, no, 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 you didn't. Because we often want to figure it out ourselves. Right, or or we're not even in a position where we can see the other idea clearly because we've got something totally different in our head. So tying it back into that devil's advocate character, the devil's advocate wants the spotlight on themselves and they want to turn the light off on everyone else. Whereas the person who is most interested in your success is the one who is not going to tell you your ideas are wrong and theirs are right. And they're not even going to take credit when they give you an idea that was great if you don't realize they gave it to you. They're going to let you think it was yours because that's going to make you feel really good. Right. So that's the person who says yes and, the one who generously shares that light with other people. Interesting. Yeah, of course. There's someone who can share the limelight. That's, of course, more rare than I think a lot of us would like to admit, because it is great to get credit for ideas, especially in a place like a work environment where you might be clamoring for trying to curry favor and ideas are currency Mm -hmm. and credit for ideas is currency. Sure. Look, maybe it's just my worldview, but I think if we lead with that perspective, then we're going to see it come back to us. And if we don't, we don't. That's fine, too. Not everybody is going to embrace, you know, the way we see the world. But if we just wait and say, well, if they share with me, then I'll share with them. You know, we're like three years old, maybe five. Not a very advanced way to look at the world, right? So how do we start to scrub away the persona? And we sort of touched on this earlier as well, the, the persona that people have, the fake sort of representative that people have, or 
you know, to go up on the proverbial stage and, and stop hiding, how do we scrub away the grubby layers of our persona, the fat, really, trimming the, the fat of our personality and sure. start to show people who we are slash see ourselves more clearly? Yep. Yeah. So in one of my keynotes, uh, the Think Big Revolution, I talk specifically about this idea of, of scrubbing away these layers of fat persona so that we can see ourselves as we actually are and then allow other people to see that too. It's very scary because you think, well, if I show people the weak side of myself, well, then they are going to think I'm weak. And gosh, you know, uh, who wants to feel weak or look weak in other people's eyes? Nobody. What I have found, however, is that when I started seeing myself as I actually am and allowing other people to see that too, I started feeling more powerful. And of course, if you feel more powerful, then other people see you as powerful. Because many of us have stories. Many of us have had difficulties. Many of us struggle with things now. So when I was little, I felt like a fat kid. I was pretty much double the size of most of my friends by the time I was in the eighth grade. So you felt like a fat kid or you were a fat kid? I wasn't. I wasn't. I was one of those man-child children. Okay. Yeah. You know, I was full grown by the time I was 13, but I also loved to eat and was sometimes pretty pudgy. Like I wore the husky jeans. So I guess I was a fat kid, but I felt like a fat kid, which is more important in this particular case, because how we feel about ourselves is what we think is true. That was the issue that I had as a kid because I felt like a fat kid. So I put myself on a diet after the summer of eighth grade. And I lost a lot of weight. And I looked what I thought was pretty good. And I came to believe that what really mattered was being skinny and looking good because all of a sudden, all the girls like me. So I said, you know what? Got to be skinny. Got to stay looking good. And that's a tough place to be in when you are somebody who wants to eat. Right. And I loved to eat. And so <laughs> over the years, I developed this compulsive behavior of overeating. But, you know, I was an athlete and I competed, so I was able to stay fit still and look pretty good. But I'd have these episodes where I would binge eat. Oh, wow. Yeah. If you move into my 30s, if you fast forward to my 30s, I was a new father and I was going through a divorce. And I was trying to build a business all at the same time. And I took it all on as stress, stress, and more stress. And I lost control. So by day, I was advising people on how to be more successful in their business and think big. And by night, I was eating everything in sight. And my weight would go up. And then I'd fight like hell to get it back down. And I'd lose that fight. And it would go back up. And once again, I'd fight like hell to get it back down. And I would lose that fight. And it would go back up. And when it was up, I would turn down speaking gigs and I would turn down TV appearances. Oh, so man. as I got bigger, my world got smaller. So this started affecting your personal life, career, everything. Everything. And so listen to this. I would run out in the middle of the night to the convenience store to buy all of the Mint Oreo cookie ice cream, cheese doodles, gummy bears, donuts, whatever I could find. Then I'd race home and shove it all in my face. And about halfway through that binge, because my stomach was in so much pain, and not to mention I felt like a worthless human being, right. I would pour water all over what was left, and I'd shove it deep into the garbage bin. And then a half hour later, I'd be digging into the garbage bin to pull out the water-soaked, half-eaten slop to force back down my throat, and I couldn't stop. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. And at that point, I knew the hole that I was trying to fill was truly bottomless. I was addicted to food. I know that sounds unusual or even crazy to people who have not experienced that, but it's really no different than alcohol, except this. When an alcoholic stops, they stop drinking, and you can't really do that with food. You've got to eat. Right, yeah, you can't exactly stay away from the places where it's served and, you know, never get near it. You just die. You have to eat, period. Right, right. yeah. Yeah, and with my compulsion, there's no moderation. I can't just have one cookie. There are never enough cookies in the bag, period. So what I did is I just gave up all of my 
favorite foods, like the things that would be my trigger foods that would get me to want to eat more. So anything with white flour, anything with sugar, anything deep fried, because I'll tell you what, you could deep fry a car tire. And I think that <laughs> I think most of us are on that page, yeah. actually. Now back to the good stuff. Yeah. And so that's when my life changed. That's when I absolutely, everything in my world changed because it wasn't that I, well, I shouldn't eat that. It was, I don't eat that. I do this. I don't do that. I do this. I don't do that. And my commitment to living the life that was free of that kind of compulsion opened me up to whole new ways of being. And that year that I made that change, I made twice as much money as I did the year before with no intention to. It wasn't my goal. Like, well, I'm going to make more money this year because now I'm eating good. It had nothing to do with that. And who cares how much money I made? I use that as an example to show you how when you're hiding, when you are playing small, it's going to affect all the different areas of your life. It affected my role as a father. It affected my role as a partner to my girlfriend. It affected my role as a business owner. It affected my role as a friend. So until we start to deal with the things that we're hiding, we're going to hide. We are going to stay inside, so to speak. And the fact that I can talk about it now is what gives me power. Sure. How did you make the shift, though, between... I'm thinking, okay, so you had the compulsive eating going on. How did you get control over that? Well, I'm always going to be compulsive in that way. You know, I, I could eat four boxes of strawberries if I didn't, you know, pay attention to it, right? I, I'm always going to be that way. Just like anybody who's an alcoholic is an alcoholic. If you were a heroin addict, you're a heroin addict. That's not going to, you know, all of a sudden you're going to be fine. Like, oh, I have a little heroin, I'll be fine. It doesn't work that way. Right. Um, but... I can't tell you exactly why it worked the time that it did work, but I think that I just got so sick of myself, so sick of hiding that. I hid it from everyone for over 20 years, and I think it was the hiding that I got sick of. Sure. It's exhausting. And, yeah. And so what I did is I just ate the same thing every day for every meal pretty much for a year. So I never had to think about it. There were no choices involved. It took away all the choices. Right. And it made it a lot easier. But what really, really made it work for me is when I slowly started talking about it. I remember the first time I said, oh, no, I can't have any cookies because if I have one cookie, I'll have all the cookies. And the person I said it to just laughed, like not in an at me way, but like, oh yeah, I know what you mean. I was like, oh, wait a second. The person didn't think I was an idiot. The person didn't think I was some bad person. The person didn't think I was weak. It didn't destroy my image. It didn't destroy my reputation. Oh, wow. That was a surprise to me. So I slowly, just little bit by little bit by little bit, started revealing more of it. And I don't go around all day long talking about this by any stretch of the imagination. But I share it when it comes up, if it comes up organically. And, you know, 99.9% .9 of the people are like, wow. Thanks for sharing that. I, I think it's cool that now I know you're a regular human being like the rest of us. And you know what? I got this thing over here. And all of a sudden they open up to me. Yes. I think the vulnerability aspect, in fact, I get email like this a lot because on the show I, I frequently talk about my own mistakes, shortcomings, path to get where I am now in extreme candor uh, sometimes. It, that can be a little bit uncomfortable. But it's really good for me because it's very cathartic, but also it makes us relatable as humans, not just as presenters or, or people who do media stuff, but as humans, because there's a little bit of fat Michael Port in all of us, right? Yeah. And just as there's a little bit of super shy, introverted Jordan Harbinger in all of us. Yep, absolutely. And, and it also just helps us be more appreciative and tolerant of others when we recognize who we really are and our imperfections. So if you think of yourself as perfect, even when you're not, if you are hiding parts of yourself, trying to create this image of shoulders back, you know, real tough, slick back hair, glasses, whatever, you know, you're trying to create this image. 
people are going to have a hard time relating to you because they may often feel that you're not going to get them. You're not going to appreciate them and their challenges and their uh, quote unquote weaknesses. Sure. You know, creates a distance. And, you know, generally, women often really appreciate a man who is open and honest and sincere. And to many women, that's very charming. Of course. Yeah, that vulnerability shows a realness that most men are afraid to showcase. That vulnerability is so rare that it actually showcases true strength because you can lower the proverbial shield, which most people won't do. Yeah. Especially absolutely. a man around a woman. I remember when I was single and I had a match.com profile, I did the whole profile as a, I'm this, but this. You know, for example, you know, I'm an environmentalist, but I drive a Range Rover. You know, all these contradictions. <laughs> sure. It was funny at the same time. So that was certainly helpful that it was a little clever. But what I was saying is that, look, I know who I am and I'm not perfect. So I try to be an environmentalist, but you know what? I bought a fucking Range Rover, right. you know? Because you live in LA and that's cool, right? Uh, but it runs on quinoa, so it's okay. <laughs> you know, when I would meet, uh, you know, women through match, they often said, I really appreciated that you were so honest and open about all these contradictions uh, that you have, because it helped me trust you a little bit, you know, even before I met you. Excellent. And so showcasing that vulnerability helps us become more trustworthy and relatable to others as well, which it's funny. I just talked about this today in a personal branding show about how authenticity and vulnerability are so key because people want to buy you, right? And you talk about this, you train a lot of speakers and a lot of presenters as well. Yeah, the first book I wrote is called Book Yourself Solid and in chapter three is about this idea of personal branding. You know, to me, there's just a couple components to this idea of personal branding. You know, one is who you serve and what you help people do. That's the first thing people consider, like, you know, you know who does Jordan help and what does he help them achieve, get, make, create? But then the second thing they want to know is why, because, you know, there are lots of people, you know, that help others get what you help them get. You know, that's just normal. There's lots of people who do the things that we do. But the question is, why? Why does he do it? And ultimately, it comes down to what do you stand for? Why do you get up every day to do this work? You know, when I say, what do you stand for? It's not something glib that I'm asking about. People and organizations that stand for something stand out. They really do. Standing for something helps you build trust. Sure. Standing for something lifts you up when you break down. And standing for something just makes it a heck of a lot more fun to do your thing because you're on a mission to do something that matters to you. The drive and passion show through as well. They sure do. Which is contagious. We just, we just need to be careful that we don't Stand for something while at the same time trying to please everyone or do everything because you know you can't be the the spiritual compass moral leader yoga guru and also sleep with all your students you know you can't be the corporate culture focused CEO but just this one time not pay out full commissions to the sales staff right because standing for something often requires making difficult decisions and it's they're often about what we don't do. You know, we need to be able to say, I don't work with people that don't keep their promises. I don't take work that isn't worth doing. I don't let people disrespect me or others. While at the same time saying, I don't judge others. I don't think I'm entitled to success. I know I must earn it. And standing for something can be that guiding force. So for me, I stand for thinking big. Now, of course, you can stand for lots of different things. I stand for you know, democratic access to education. I stand for justice, for integrity, for truth, for equality, for children's rights, for women's rights, for et cetera. We can stand for lots of things. But if we want to build a personal brand that moves us forward professionally and can also support us personally, then we can stay accountable to that big idea. And for me, it's this idea of thinking big. So I can't show up and be petty. I can't show up and be small. It's just not possible. So I mentioned before that when I was able to get my eating under control, well, I decided I do this, I don't do this. 
that's it. This is the way it is. These do not exist for me. I do not eat these ever again. Well, that's accountability to it. This is the same thing. I cannot, I do not, I will not play small. I will only play big. I have to be accountable to that idea because I'm going to go out in the world and build my reputation on it. So what do you want to build your reputation on? What do you want to get known for? What do you want to stand for? What do you want to talk about? What do you want to be held accountable to? That's the question that I think is interesting to ask. Interesting. And and of course, that requires a lot of introspection as well. We have to know ourselves really well to get there. Exactly. And that's what we were talking about before, right? This idea of being able to see yourself as you actually are. In many ways, the mission of the whole show here that we've got at at the Art of Charm. Because that's a charming thing. You know, I was thinking about the name of your show before I came on the program and I was thinking, you know, I wonder how most people think about charm. You know, when you think about charm, I think a lot of people think about like the big guy who comes in the room and gives you the bear hug and it's got a great joke for, you know, for every situation. And, and that's not really what charm is about to me. I, no. I imagine it's something very different to you too, but, but I'm interested in, in knowing like how you see charm, what that means to you and the people that, you know, you're serving. You know, really what it comes down to, and it sounds cliche, but it, allow me to flesh it out, is is that authenticity where you know yourself so well, you're familiar with all of your strengths as, as well as your weaknesses, and you're able to use those and communicate those in a relatable way or a way that makes you relatable in a very strong way to to others. Not, not yeah. just as many people as possible, but yeah. strong and deep connections. Because at the end of the day, if you're talking about when we say this a lot, people buy you, right? And whether or not it's business or relationships, people buy you. And if they don't feel like they can connect with you, and I don't mean, oh, you like chocolate? I like chocolate. Let's hang out. It's it's more, it's something much deeper. And you don't have to have things in common, but they have to feel safe. They have to like and trust you. And that is something that is so nuanced and human that Mm -hmm. our entire company is dedicated to teaching people how to do it effectively. I love it. And that, it really does tie into this idea of making and keeping promises that we talked about earlier because trust is built on promises. If I say, Jordan, I'm going to do this thing for you and I do it, you go, oh, he followed through. I, I can trust him for those kinds of things. Now I make another bigger promise to you and I follow through. Hey, geez, you know, Mike seems to be somebody who does the things he says he's going to do and then continue on and on and on. And after we get to know each other, if the things that I say I'm going to do, I do, you go, I trust him. We don't have to both go water skiing together. We don't have to share the exact same interests. We don't have to have the same personalities. We could have different political views. All of those things could be different. But because we do the things we say we're going to do, we can build a relationship of trust together around the kinds of commitments we make to each other. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate this. Is there anything that you want to leave us with? Well, look, I just, you know, I hope the folks who are listening just keep thinking big about who they are and what they offer the world and that together we can do a lot more than we can alone. You know, forget about what the naysayers have to say. You live your life. Don't worry about what anybody else says. Just focus on results and not approval. Were you always good at communication? I mean, were you always outgoing? Yes, I was. I think it's because I'm dyslexic. Oh, really? Yeah. So people who are dyslexic are often good verbal communicators, number one. Number two, they're often good problem solvers because the way the world is presented to them doesn't always make sense. So they have to figure out different ways of doing things, which is, of course, very entrepreneurial. Yes. And they're also good at getting other people to do their work for them, which is, of course, very entrepreneurial because if you want to build an actual business, then you need to build it so that it doesn't require you always being there. (laughs) <laughs> nailed it, right? That makes so much sense. I've, I've got a great friend, he's an entrepreneur, and he's, he's super dyslexic to the point where, I mean, writing things on a grease board takes forever, so we have to have a scribe. And then we were joking the other day because he had someone typing for him, we had somebody writing on the board for him, and all he was doing was talking. It was like, wait a minute, is this how you run your business? And he's like, pretty much. If I go give a speech, I bring somebody up to write on the flip chart for me. I cannot do both at the same time. Even if I could sit up there and slowly write the words out that I was going to say, 
I'll spell half of them incorrectly. Right, with the backwards E and all that stuff looking, yeah. You know, that's why it's this idea that you don't have to be the greatest at every single thing and that you can say, look, I can't spell and I can't talk and write at the same time, so can somebody help me, please? And people will jump up wanting to help. You've got to be a person that others want to help. And how can you be the kind of person that others want to help? Excellent. That's a great thought exercise, essentially. Yeah. As well. And that's one of the things that we think about here all the time. How can we be the kind of people that others want to help? I think that mindset will take you really far, especially if you run a business. Hope so. Thanks so much, Michael. Michaelport.com. And of course, we'll have the books rather linked up in the show notes, Book Yourself Solid, among many others. And you're coming out with some new stuff. What do you have on the horizon? Really, thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you, Michael. Much appreciated. Wow, loaded episode there from Michael Port. Go check out Book Yourself Salad. Of course, that's going to be linked up in the show notes and check out michaelport.com for more from him. He's got a blog there with a lot of useful information. Really interesting to hear that Book Yourself Salad was originally from dating mindsets, and I can completely see that. The eating disorder and the battle therewith was really interesting. I love the link here to keeping ourselves accountable, keeping ourselves honest, and how that can be a key and a driver of our own success and keeping us on track, as well as the idea that being authentic, being able to relate to others is all about being not just authentic, but stopping hiding, getting in the spotlight, and being flexible and scrubbing away those fat layers of persona. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope there was value in there, and we'll see you next time. Solid show as usual, if I do say so myself. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Bootcamp details, that's our live training at theartofcharm.com. And that's also where you can find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for The Art of Charm Podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's it. You guys can also help us. If you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, give us a five-star rating and write something nice. We'll love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash theartofcharm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily and get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing training from us. So tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything better than you found it. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.